Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest is Lama Paulden Droma, one of the first Western Lamas. And the two of them will be discussing her latest new book, Love on Every Breath. So tune in and learn an ancient Tibetan Buddhist meditation that combines breath, awareness, imagination, and energetic transformation process. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. And you can also find out more about me and connect with me for coaching through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. So we'll just jump right in today with our fantastic guest, um, another wonderful New World Library author. You all know how much I love New World Library. Um, And so today we have on the show Lama Paulden Droma. She is the author of Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. Lama Paulden is a licensed psychotherapist, spiritual teacher, and coach. Uh, She has studied Buddhism in the Himalayas with some of the most preeminent Tibetan masters of the 20th century. Following a traditional three-year retreat under his guidance, Kalu Rinpoche authorized her to become one of the first Western Lamas. She subsequently founded the Sukha City Foundation, a Tibetan Buddhist teaching center in Fairfax, California. And you can visit her online at lamapaulden.org. That is lamapaulden.org. And the book, again, if you want to check it out, is Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. Lama Paulden, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes. Well, I was really interested um, I, when, um, when Kim, Corden, Kim Corbin, who is one of my favorite publicists uh, from New World Library, reached out. And she said, I have this wonderful llama. She was actually one of the first Western llamas. Um, and she's got this new book. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. So I'm curious, number one, how you became one of the first llamas uh, uh, in the West. And, and as a female, too. I don't know if that has any bearing on it as well. Well, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what is a good Episcopalian girl from the Marin <laughs> County in the Bay Area end up as a Tibetan llama? Yeah. I just, following a lifelong interest from childhood in mysticism of all traditions, Uh, I just ended up in my 20s after doing a lot of yoga and sitting Zen and studying mystical Christianity and Sufism and a variety of traditions. I prayed to meet my own teacher, my spiritual teacher, my guru, so to speak. And uh, actually, it was interesting. I prayed to Mary. And uh, lo and behold, a friend dragged me off to meet this old Tibetan Lama in San Francisco. This is back in the 70s. And uh, I knew within about five minutes, here's my teacher. And that was one of those experiences of a deep inner knowing that's been unshakable now for 42 years. Of course, he passed away uh, in the end of the 80s. But still uh, strongly connected with him. And I also stay with many other uh, Tibetan masters. So I had wanted since the age of about 13 to go into retreat. And it turned out he was the Tibetan uh, preeminent retreat master of the 20th, late 20th century. So I went into long retreat, uh, three and a half years under him. And then a year or so later, He authorized me as a Lama, and he was uh, extremely traditional and really well-respected, but radical in the sense that he was the first to train and authorize Westerners, including women, equally as Lamas. Mm. I just, I wonder, how did that conversation occur? I mean, were you surprised? Did you expect that to happen? Did this feel like it was going to be your calling, or was it just out of the blue? It was pretty much out of the blue. I (laughs) I knew... I never, ever uh, even thought about teaching or 
you know, functioning as basically kind of a priest and a teacher. Uh, but I, I never thought of it. But I did know that a lot of times following these th uh, long three-year retreats that people were made lamas. So I knew that, but I really uh, had not thought about it at all. I was busy after retreat coming back to, you know, my life and, and my responsibilities and working and so, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. And, yeah, so uh, <laughs> there you have it. But, you know, he felt like it was going to be the Westerners who could really teach Tibetan Buddhism really uh, adapted for the Westerners. That He said, you guys will be able to figure it out for the West. How interesting. Yes. And, and so what does that exactly mean? If you are authorized as a Lama, what does that term or designation mean? Well, it's... It's an authorization to teach, uh, and then that gets more specific, you know, like what you're authorized to teach, which, uh, you know, rolls out over time. And now, you know, I'm fully authorized to teach anything now for quite a few years. But it basically uh, puts you, um, I don't know what to say, you know, like it's, it's like an ordination of a priest or something mm -hmm. like that. It's similar to a rabbi or a roshi, a priest like that. So, and, you know, I function, like I said, in some sense, like a parish priest and, and then, uh, but much in Buddhism, there's much, much more teaching involved philosophically. And then, uh, most importantly, in terms of meditation and med yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to talk about some of those philosophical underpinnings. Um, I was I found that fascinating. Um, but I, I want to back up just a little bit. And I'm really curious, um, because you were raised Episcopalian in a Christian tradition. Um, and and how did you know that well, it seemed like you were raised in a very open, while it was within the bounds of the Episcopalian tradition, you were reading a lot and studying a lot of various traditions around the world. And I'm just curious how it was that that you knew that, I know that you said meeting Kalu Rinpoche was absolutely pivotal for you, but how did you know that your connection to your higher power or to, to your spiritual practice was going to come through Buddhism compared coming from an Episcopalian background. I just, I was fascinated by that. Well, I didn't know it was Buddhism. I think um, it was really meeting Kala Rinpoche that I just thought in that moment, well, whatever religion he is, <laughs> I know he's my teacher. But uh, since I was young, I actually, since I was three, remembered that in past lives I'd lived in different countries. Mm. And I think I'd, and then I always had, um, that and that sort of knowingness. And when I was nine, my grandmother gave me two small books for Christmas. And they were just like, you know, mere copies of each other. But one was called Wisdom from the Orient. And one was called Wisdom from the Ox Occident. The, mm -hmm. And they were wisdom sayings from the great sages and masters from, you know, Asia or Europe or Greece or somewhere. And I just love that. And that really sparked both of those books I loved. And it's I used to read them, you know, every night before bed from 9 to 10, 11. And that sparked this interest in comparative mysticism and religion that then I explored for, you know, many years. And I'm still involved in interfaith and that kind of thing. Yes, yes. I saw that on your bio. Um, and so... I want to also ask more about, you know, as we get into the, the content of the book, kind of the overarching concept that I took away is, and I'm, I'm reading your words here, that many of us take in the suffering of others and it simply sits in us unprocessed, weighing us down. Love on every breath provides a way to transform this pain into love and joy. Um, do you mind kind of framing up our conversation about where we're going with this, the, the Tonglen and then how you have adapted it? Yes, yes. So, uh, so yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. So caring people, people that have, you know, that care about humanity, there's so much suffering. And of course, there always has been, but we're very aware of it now through media. And we're also facing climate change, which has, you know, not happened in our recorded history. So there's so much pain and suffering. And 
we do unconsciously and consciously take it in just, well, the, we absorb it unconsciously, just, you know, through our caring and hearing about what's going on. And the love on every breath is an ancient meditation and where two parts happen, both when we have taken it in unconsciously, we can transform that in our heart and send it back as love so that it's not sitting there heavy inside of us, weighing us down and leading to depression and sort of immobility. And we can go through the, a tonglen means taking and sending. So the taking in that case has already been done and we want to transform it and send it back. And this type of meditation is a transformational meditation. It's in a genre of Tibetan meditation that's very active called creative meditation, where it's very, uh, you're very much engaged with the transformational process. And then, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, please, please keep going. <laughs> well, then, so then there's also, um, where we consciously take it in, say, for example, say, for example, we hear that in the Midwestern, you know, United States now, they've been suffering all these floods for weeks now, and people have lost their homes and all of this kind of thing. And so say we just feel the suffering and pain of that, we can consciously also, as an example, just imagine those people that have been affected breathe in their pain to our heart chakra, and then imagining that the awakened um, essence of who we are, the awakened essence of all Buddhas, of all sages and saints through all times and religions, that innate awakened divine nature that's present in each and every one of us. We imagine that as a light or a um, crystal vajra, which I have a drawing of in the book, a crystal vajra of light in the heart. And then that is what transforms the suffering into awakened or divine love, which then is healing energy and awakening energy. And it, we send that as light back into the people, say, like in this example, those people affected by the flood we send that light into them and see them being healed and gradually awakened and all along, you know, through this process filled with love. Yes. And it is, it feels um, like it's such a natural process, especially I, I was familiar with Tonglin before this interview, but really your book really helped me take it to a new level. Um, and it feels, it feels like a very natural process, especially with some of the work that I've been doing. Um, I, I'm obsessed with the research and science coming out of the heart math Institute about oh, the power yeah. of the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about that, but I thought it was so interesting that you shared a really intimate story about how as a young child, that this form of, of, this practice of breathing something in and healing and sending it back out really came to you innately or it arose very intuitively within you. And I, I was, would you be comfortable talking about that? Sure, sure. And, and also I really agree. I just want to say, Sunny, that it's very natural. Like, like this process of taking in suffering. And then so many people so many times want to send out love. Like your friend comes to you and, and she or he is suffering. And of course you feel their pain and you send them love. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very natural innate process. And the meditation helps grow our capacity to transform inside and then be more effective in the world and actually be able to, you know, fully um, send the love out in a way, you know, once it's fully transformed. So it helps us fully transform and then send it out being more effective in the world. So, yeah, when I was seven, and it's interesting, um, I mean, I feel fine to talk about it now, but I'd never told anyone this story before. And it came up in when I was uh, start writing the book proposal and talking with a friend about it. And he said, oh, my gosh, you have to put that in. But 
when I was seven, I was playing with my girlfriend. We were at her house across the street from my house here in Marin. And we went, were in the bedroom of her 15-year-old brother just hanging out. And he said all of a sudden, like, oh, pull down your pants. And being unsuspecting, I just pulled my pants down. And he put his hand on my vulva. And instantly I recoiled, pulled up my pants and ran out of the house home, which I think was a good instinct. Yeah. But I felt after that, I never told anyone this story until like, you know, a year or two ago when this came up, but I felt, you know, shame. I felt dirty. I felt somehow like I could still feel his hand there, even though it was gone. I felt his hand there for many months, like soiled or dirty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had no idea about sex. I was clueless, but it just, you know, felt like that. And I think that's how a lot of women feel when they're sexually violated, even in this minor instance. Yeah. So because I was raised Christian and had a lot of devotion to Jesus and everything, I decided to call upon Jesus. And every night before I went to sleep, after my mom had said, you know, mom and dad had said goodnight, I was in my bed with all the lights out and I called on Jesus and I would imagine him there, this being of light standing next to me on my, uh, next to my bed. And I asked him for healing and pure, I don't know my words, I can't remember exactly, but I, I wanted to be healed of this and requested him that. And so then from his hand came this stream of white liquid light like nectar, like divine blessing that came into me and filled my body. And I felt like it was washing away this defilement or, you know, this, this uh, soiled thing that had happened to me. And I, I did that every night for many months. And, you know, in my childhood brain, it was seven years old, I thought it was about a year. I have no idea exactly how long, but I, mean, I thought at the time about a year had gone by doing this every night. I don't know, you know, how long. But then there was a, a night where all of a sudden I felt like I was completely fine. There was no more defilement or however I framed that in my young mind. And just I felt completely like myself again, completely pure and just healed and like there was no more problems. So I felt wonderful and I I was very grateful and I thanked Jesus for coming all those nights. And, you know, that was it. And then I went on with my life. But it was a powerful experience of the possibility and potential for spiritual cleansing and healing. Yes, I really, I I appreciate you sharing the story in the book, and I'm so glad you included it. And I really appreciate you speaking about it here with us today, because in reading that, I thought, I feel like there are a lot of uh, women and perhaps men as well out there who can relate to this. And I just want to convey how beautiful this uh, love on every breath, um, the the innate practice that arose within you uh, in that setting, and as what you have developed here, um, and what you teach and write about here, about how it can be incredibly transformative, um, not only for the world at large, but in our own microcosm of our lives and the things, the traumas that we've experienced. Um, and you know, one of the things that you mentioned there that I think is I want to, I would love to have you speak about is with this the the concept of 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 the taking in and the sending out when it comes into that the the vajra you describe in the the heart space the, i think sometimes people can get exhausted in trying to heal the suffering because we're trying to do it ourselves. We're taking it in, we hold on to it, and then we think we're sending it out. But from what my understanding is, is that the Vajra, the 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 um, and the other beings that you incorporate into the meditation are actually the ones doing the transforming. It's not the little human doing it. <laughs> Absolutely, Sunny, and this is why I feel that. This version of Tonglen, which orally came from an awakened woman, you know, a thousand years ago, you know, I think that's why this Tonglen is especially helpful right now, because our little egos for so many of us are so beleaguered and tired, you know, and weighted down and our lives are so demanding and all of that. And in this Tonglen, we call upon 
the awakened presence. So in the traditional version, we call upon the Bodhisattva of compassion, Chen Rezi, and we think that all awakened love and compassion in the entire totality of what is, is embodied by him. And I've also included, as my teacher taught too, that you could use Jesus, you could use whoever you want from your own tradition, or if you're not religious, you can um, call upon the great spirit or the the spirit of, of goodness, of love in the universe. And so you can adapt this, but you call upon help from divine or awakened beings. And that way, it's not our ego that's doing the transformation, but they're helping us. Now, they, there's another really big piece of this in that we are not separate from those saints or sages or awakened beings. Of course, we're all inseparable. And awakened presence, like I mentioned before, divine being is in each of us, you know, that divine essence, awakened essence. And so the beings that we're calling on to help, they also help us connect with our own awakened essence through coming to be with us, dissolving into us, and us feeling them inside of ourselves as this Vajra, which is the symbol of indestructible, immutable, primordially pure, awakened being or awakened essence, divine essence that is in each and every one of us. So the, the meditation practice, we receive all this help from the power of, of awakened presence. And then we also have a gateway to really connect with that presence inside of ourselves. Yes, and and so with the help of the the uh, the awakened beings, and with the the vajra in the heart, um, I picture. Do you mind just? Um, well, I'm wondering, Lama Paulden, how do you? Would you like to walk through just an overview of what the steps are, or should sure. we just dive sure. in? Because <laughs> I've got sure. some specific questions. Okay, sure, I can do a brief overview. So. In, for people who most people aren't, aren't familiar with Tibetan Buddhist meditation, in these creative transformational practices, there's a series of steps which help unlock our pure being, which help unlock our wisdom and love. So the first um, in, in this meditation, and this is standard, is just resting in open awareness. And of course, all these steps I go into in depth in the book, but basically letting go of everything in our minds and just opening and being present with what is and letting the mind rest in stillness with what is. So basic quiet meditation of letting go. Then the next step is awakened sanctuary or um, going for refuge in awakened sanctuary where we call upon the awakened or divine beings or do it in a uh, non-religious sense and call upon them to be present with us to mirror back to us our true nature and to transmit awake presence to us during our meditation and to hold us in this sanctuary of uh, awakened or divine presence. Then the next step as we are about to enter our meditation further is we think to ourselves, I'm entering into my meditation not only for my own benefit, but on behalf of all beings everywhere. And may my meditation benefit all beings everywhere. And through this, may I help liberate all beings out of suffering into joy and into great liberation. And then the, the next step, we, as we, you and I were speaking about, we call upon uh, a divine being, you know, in the traditional form, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And we pray that our awakened compassion and love may fully open. And then we 
imagine this great being dissolving into light into us and we're inseparable with awakened love then and the vajra or the light is in our heart that is embodying this awakened love and so this is then where we feel way more empowered and we're connected to something much larger than ourselves that helps us um, transform the suffering. Then in the heart of the practice, the taking and sending, there you can extend this out to many people, but we start with ourselves. And this is where people can really use this meditation for their own self-healing. And that is, we imagine our ordinary human self in front of us, and we contemplate the sufferings, the trials, everything that we're dealing with, that maybe traumas we've gone through, whatever. And we develop uh, more self-love and compassion. And we really feel that compassion and love for our ordinary human self from the perspective of a more, you know, awakened perspective. And then we consciously breathe in all the suffering of our ordinary human self into the heart, into the light. It's transformed through the awakened love instantly into awakened love, into joy. And that love, that peace, that joy, the healing energy goes out of our heart as light into our ordinary self and affects the healing and transformation. And This is very powerful for the actual healing capacity, you know, that we spoke of, like I experienced as a child, but also for really working through our issues and really learning to love ourselves because we are the center of our own mandala. We are the heart of our own experience, right in the core of it. And we need to be able to bring love to our human self and then rest in that love, have that fill ourselves and in that way experience love in our lives from the inside out. Yes. Then the the next step is to include others. And traditionally, if we're teaching this meditation, we would have the person focus on themselves for some months first because we all have a lot of issues about self-love and we all have, you know, hurts and pains and traumas. So, you know, we usually go in depth in that and then move on to including others. And we start with people that we love and gradually work out. And we say, for example, a dear friend who's suffering, we imagine them in front and then we do that taking in sending in the same way as we did for ourselves, we do that for our loved one and we see them becoming healed illuminated awakened and then uh after that with whoever we're doing it for ourselves or others or a whole group at after that stage when everybody is illuminated then we imagine that ourselves and the person we're doing the Tonglen for, we all dissolve into light, into space. And for a few moments or minutes or more, we just rest again in open awareness and formlessness. And this also gets us used to um, not having a body, um, like after death. Right. And being comfortable resting in formlessness, which, you know, many meditations introduce that. And then at the end, we reappear as a being of light and imagining again, we're an awakened being of light. This is said to set in motion auspicious cause and effect. And then we dedicate any and all benefit from our meditation to all sentient beings that we all may be liberated from suffering. We all may be established in the true nature of who we really are and be at peace and in happiness and joy. 
Yes, beautiful. Um, and I think that's a wonderful place to take our break. Um, we are talking today with Lama Paulden Droma, one of the first Western Lamas, discussing her book, Love on Every Breath. Um, and we were just going through those eight steps in the meditation. Um, and when we come back from our break, um, we will talk more about some of the specific steps. And also, she's got these wonderful on-the-spot meditations that uh, can be done individually or kind of take the process and apply it to your day-to-day -day life when things are on the go, when things are a little complicated. And that way you can pull from it what you need to when you need it. Um, and we'll show you how to do that when we get back. You're listening to Sunny in Seattle. Be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched. Unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available today on Amazon.com. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 a.m. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150kknw. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Lama Paulden Droma, talking about her latest book, Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. And I wanted to just, you know, coming off of our last segment where you gave us the eight steps and, and the book goes into really beautiful detail on the the what of every step, you know, how to do it, but the why, what is the reason behind it? What are the philosophical underpinnings? And I think it's really beautiful. But to take it down, I want to kind of switch gears or I guess contrast it. You had the opportunity to teach love on every breath to a three-year-old. And I think I would love it if you could share that story because I think it also shows we can make it really simple too and it's equally effective and children can learn it. And I think children must need it more than ever these days anyway. Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, so this meditation is highly adaptable and it's really powerful to just take a segment, one of the steps and do it uh, you know, anytime we're moved to in daily life. And so this three-year-old was brought to me by her godmother many years ago, and she was distressed because on the playground, 
she was a very feeling, caring child. And on the playground, she was distressed when she saw other children hurting each other, like being mean to each other Mm -hmm. or fighting. And then she was also distressed, she told me, when she was in the car and she'd see dead animals on the road and, you know, wild animals that the traffic killed. So she wanted to know if there was any meditation or some sort of, you know, practice I could give her. Uh, she had been, you know, taught a little bit about these things, so she had an idea. And so she wanted a meditation to help with this. So I gave her this meditation in a very simple form, which nevertheless, as you mentioned, is very powerful. And that is to imagine a light in her heart that's, and I told her that that's the Buddha in her heart, and it's the Buddha, and it's also her light in her heart together there, inseparable. And that when she saw this suffering or felt this suffering of other beings, to breathe that pain into the light, and then the light would instantly transform it into love and healing energy. Like, and the actually in the meditation, you imagine a lightning bolt coming out of the light that instantly transforms it. And so she um, felt that and could do that. And send the light back out then into the child or the dead animal. So I I taught her like that to just breathe in the pain. It's instantly transformed into light, into healing and awakened love. And it goes back into the child or the animal, whatever. And she was quite happy and she was very, you know, this is doable. It sounds a little, might sound far-fetched, but actually three-year-olds can do this. And it's simple enough and it makes sense to them. And again, they're taking it in, the suffering already, as we know. And so then she went away and um, her godmother brought her back six or seven weeks later. And she said that the meditation, this instant practice was really, really helping her. And I think part of what was helpful for her is that this meditation, you know, whether we're three years old or 83 or whatever, it gives us agency. Mm. It gives us power. And we're at least at the very least, we can transform our internal experience. Absolutely. And that's one of the things to return to something we, we touched upon in the first part of the show, when you say it, it is very empowering. And one of, I think the, the, the parts of us as human beings, as spiritual beings in human bodies that we don't always recognize as being so powerful is our heart because there's such an emphasis on the mind. And I just would love to hear, as I mentioned before, I love the research coming out of the HeartMath Institute about how our hearts are so much more than an organ for pumping blood, that they have an electromagnetic field that's, what is it, 6,000 times more powerful than the brain. They have cells that hold memory, just like we have brain cells that hold memory. And I would love to hear from your perspective, Lama Paulden, what, tell us about the power of the heart from where you sit in your tradition. Uh, that's, yeah, really interesting. First, just a little story. There's um, uh, Richard Davidson, who does a professor, um, oh gosh, I think it's in Michigan University there. Uh, he has um, done a lot of experiments with meditators and trying to measure compassion and loving kindness. And he so he's worked with the Dalai Lama and a lot of Tibetan monks, and he hooked you know, them up. And so when he first started hooking them up to measure their compassion and loving kindness and see how it registered in the brain, he put all those electrodes on their head and they collapsed into like they could not stop laughing. They were giggling and laughing so hard. They were just like rolling on the floor. And the researchers were like, why are you laughing? And they said, because you're attaching these things to our head and loving kindness is in the heart. <laughs> and they couldn't believe they were attaching to their head. <laughs> so that's kind of a funny story from the Tibetan side. And nevertheless, they were able to measure their meditation, the effect of the loving kindness meditation in their brains. Uh-huh. But from a yogic point of view in both um, Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, mystical traditions, I'm sure in other traditions this comes up as well, 
the heart center, the heart chakra is really a very, very powerful point in our subtle body. So of course there's the physical heart, but the heart chakra, heart center is not a physical thing in that same sense, but it's in our energy body. And I have a whole description about the energy or subtle body in the book because we're working with a heart chakra. I wanted to explain more about that energy body so people can read on that if they're interested. But the heart chakra is like you were saying, and they're starting to discover now in science, it's a very powerful uh, energetic center and they'll discover even, you know, physically more of its properties. And as we do these kind of meditations that really open us to our much greater love and compassion, it's amazing what can open in the heart chakra. Like in doing this love on every breath meditation, like on the cushion, I've just been so surprised by this unbelievable feeling of the nectar of love in my heart that arises at different times. And even when I'm not doing it for myself at all, doing it for others, it, it it's so self-fulfilling too, because this feeling of being flooded by this divine love in, in our heart centers is very powerful. And it, it, it shows us more the potential of who we really are, like you were saying, truly we are spiritual beings in a human experience. Yes, and I think one of the things as we're talking about the heart, that I think at least for me, and I, you mentioned it in the book, and I work with my clients around this, is this aspect of, of turning this love toward ourself first. You mentioned that that's the primary. We start with ourselves, but it seems like it's very, this concept of self-love and turning it on ourselves first, it's very difficult for a lot of people. And I'm curious how you advise your students, you know, how do we love ourselves first and then to get Yes, out? yes. Well, you know, I think this stems back to an, uh, a feeling inside uh, that's in the collective unconscious and Westerners that there's something flawed about us. Right. That there's something innately that isn't quite right or it's deficient. And this feeling inside of us on a collective uh, unconscious level is very strong. And so we're, you know, a lot of times we criticize ourselves, we're berating ourselves or whatever. And so to move beyond that, I think, first of all, we have to consider that each and every being is worthy of love. There's no being that we would say they're not worthy of love. Even a terrible being, you know, who's destructive without condoning any of that destructiveness. Like, so, you know, maybe we'd put that person in jail, but in jail, you know, they're, they're still um, worthy to have rehab. Mm -hmm. They're still worthy that at the core, they're a a pure being that can be rehabbed. And I was just teaching love on every breath at San Quentin prison locally mm -hmm. to where I live. And, and the inmates uh, were just really taking it in and loving it. And I'm going to go back and work with them some more, but so we can consider that ourself, just like every being is equal and worthy of love. And one of the kind of side pieces of love on every breath is really contemplating our essential equality as human beings. So that's one way we can think about it. And then stepping back to look at ourselves from an awakened perspective, of course, we can see that we're worthy of love and we can innately feel that compassion for our suffering human self. And we can also reflect on we're trying very hard. Everybody's trying very hard to be happy. But a lot of times the way we go about trying to be happy isn't working. And we know this, you know, mm -hmm. and some people, you know, you know, more or less healthy people pretty much go about trying to be happy in the pretty much a positive way that works. <laughs> but we all have those parts of ourselves where like, 
oh, well, we'll just ate a quart of ice cream. <laughs> that was maybe really happy in the moment, but later it's not working that well for me. <laughs> and some people are just constantly making bad, you know, they, and maybe their choices are limited. Like maybe they're in a, in a gang in a city where you have to be in a gang and that's their only choice for survival. And it's not a great option, but it's their only option. And that's the way they're going to find their way. So we got to, you know, look at ourselves, our circumstances, see how hard, you know, we're trying to be happy and have compassion that that isn't always working, that we're not always so smart about that. And that a lot of us have also suffered a lot at the hands of other human beings. Yeah. And so, you know, contemplating all of these things, you know, we can develop more loving kindness and then compassion and actual love for our human self. Yes. And and you brought up a point that I want to to follow up with a question about. So the, the idea that we've been talking about today in love on every breath is the idea of the taking in and then the transforming of the suffering and then the sending back out. But you mentioned, you know, there's, I think there are a lot of human behaviors, compulsive behaviors perhaps that we engage in when we are trying to numb out or to buffer from all that is going on around us. And so eating a pint of ice cream might be one of them, drinking, overworking, gambling, uh, sex, all of the things that we engage in to kind of get away from the reality. But I'm curious, is this what you're talking about when you say that, that, you know, the problem is often that we absorb the suffering of others and then it stagnates inside of us? Is that a result, these compulsive behaviors we engage in, is that a result of the stagnation of suffering inside of us? I think so. And I think it's our own unprocessed suffering as well as the unprocessed suffering of others. And, you know, all those hurts and woundings, which are unprocessed inside of us. So, yes, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, like you said, then we we feel pain, but we want to get away from it. And the problem is it doesn't work to just run away from it as we know to try to pretend it isn't there run away from it or suppress it doesn't work and we actually have to engage with it and we have to feel it and then it can be liberated and transformed but we have to really acknowledge and be willing to feel it and it's actually feeling our own wounding and those that suffering of others that enables it to be transformed through love. Yes. And that brings up another point that I really, I was glad that you touched on in the book is around our shadow side. And I, the way that you phrased it, I'll just read your words here, but this, this love on every breath really allows us to engage with the shadow side in a way that I don't think we often do. So you write that if we don't have enough sense of our basic goodness, the ego will block us from looking at our more neurotic parts because it can't handle it. But that love on every breath gives us the tools to be able to engage with all the parts. Yes. And thanks for bringing that up. I think this is such an important point. And the uh, basic goodness is a translation of from Tibetan of the term Buddha nature or our awakened nature that we all have this inside innately. And we can sense our basic goodness through those spontaneous acts of loving kindness or compassion that arise from us. We can sense our basic goodness. Like just uh, the other night I was sitting on my deck and a house kitty corner to me below me on the hillside. These two guys were on their deck and one was sitting in chair and I realized the other guy was cutting his hair. And I just watched these two guys for a while and the one guy taking such care to do a really good job cutting his friend's hair. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he spent so much time and then they looked at it and they snipped again. And that, just that, just 
wanting to do a good job. People go to work. Millions of people all over the world every day go to work and try their best to do a good job. This is our innate basic goodness. Mm -hmm. And we need to actually be able to feel that and get in touch with that instead of this feeling of there's something wrong with me. Instead to feel, oh, what I feel is this innate basic goodness. I feel that inside myself. And of course, there's ways I need to improve myself. You know, and maybe like you were bringing up like compulsions that I need to work on or work through. But once we can actually start to feel that, and it's very different, like I've noticed in the Himalayan countries that I've been in a lot, uh, for example, Bhutan, where there's much more this sense from their cultural that this much more, you know, it's unconscious still, but it's more that. I'm okay as I am feeling, like I am basically okay. It's much different. And so I think for us as Westerners, this is such an important piece because like you were bringing up that I talk about in the book, once we really can be in touch with our basic goodness, then we can look at our shadow side because we know that's not who we totally are and it's not really who we are. It's you know, our shadow side arises out of our own confusion and our own ignorance and our own trying to accomplish things, you know, in ways that don't work. Yes. Yeah. So, and we have, gosh, we've got just a little under two minutes left, Lama Paulden. Um, I, I, I have many more questions, but I just, I want to make sure that, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you would like to turn to, or should I draw from my list? <laughs> well, I think you've really done a great job of covering all the really key points here. Well, wonderful. Well, I will, I will share one of the things uh, as we wrap up here, you know, some people might think, goodness, I just never tend to make time for the, the, my meditations. And I, one of the quotes that you shared from one of your teachers, I loved, and I just would maybe like to wrap up here is that you write um, from one of your teachers, you might as well just put out two cushions for your meditation sessions, one for you and one for your resistance. It will accompany you a lot of the time. (laughs) Any parting words on dealing with the resistance as we want to put these things into practice? I think to just give it space and realize that The resistance generally comes from fear that is part of our human ego fear that if we engage in spiritual practice and meditation, we're going to upset our apple cart. We're going to upset our operating system Mm -hmm. that the ego has carefully put together and is managing and operating. And, you know, really, as we know through our own experience and research, that does not happen. Meditation is very beneficial and actually ends up, you know, easing our journey. But the ego gets worried. So we just have to create a lot of space around that and kindness, you know, and just let it be there. And it it will come and go. And then eventually, you know, it's less and less and less. Yes, I remember a funny story from one of my, the teacher of my heart in this lifetime is Dr. Martha Beck, and she talks about when she first sat down on her cushion, she broke out in hives and had a panic attack and ran out of the room screaming and said she'd never do it again. (laughs) Yeah, that's, 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 yeah, she had a really strong experience. She did, but fast forward to today, and she now relishes sitting for an hour or two hours at a time, and it is, she calls it, you know, the balm for her soul, and so, yes, for those out there, don't give up, and Lama Paulden Drolma, thank you so much for being on Sunny in Seattle today. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Sunny, and a great pleasure to speak with you. Yes, and for all those out there, the book is Love on Every Breath, Tonglin Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. Uh, find out more about Lama Paulden at lamapaulden.org. That's lamapaulden.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. Preceding audio was via a Skype call.